Welcome to Fine Tuning with Drew Taylor, your one-stop shop when it comes to animation news and commentary. I'm entertainment writer Jim Hill, and Mr. Taylor, whose writings on the industry you can regularly read over on The Wrap, and whose musings on the Mission Impossible movies you can listen to on Light the Fuse, the official Mission Impossible podcast, uh, he and I are recording this week's show on Thursday, December 21st, and we have to move it along here, folks. It is the shortest day of the year, uh, winter solstice, but you have to get out the door and do, uh, what is it, uh, Aquaman and the Lost Kingdom? Is that the name? The press That's screening? it, Jim. I, I was not invited to any press screenings. I'm sure mm-hmm. that is a total coincidence <laughs> and not a reflection of the quality of the film. So I'm going to go pay my 17 bucks to go see it at the IMAX City Walk. Uh, So, yeah, I think um, that's that's what I'm doing. Okay. Yeah. Wow. That 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 seventeen dollars well spent. Okay. <laughs> On the other hand, the other reason I'm moving this along is uh, as we start recording this on CBS right now, there's a two hour long special, Dick Van Dyke, ninety eight years of magic, and I do want to try to see some of that show tonight. And um, uh, Drew, have have you ever had the chance to to sit down with Dick Van Dyke? I've never sat down with him, but I've been at countless media events where Disney trots him out Mm -hmm. uh, and says, look, here's Dick Van Dyke. He's still alive and he can dance. (laughs) Um, I think that the the last one was, you know, for the UK pavilions, Mary Poppins attraction that we all are currently enjoying Jim over at Epcot. I I think we were probably sitting next to each other when that was unfolded. Okay, okay. In fact, it's interesting you you bring that up because uh, the Disney dish that Len and I recorded just this morning actually touches on the, uh, I guess it was going to be called the Royal Dalton Music Hall Spinner Ride. I mean, you were supposed to enter the Banks' house uh, on uh, on the backside of the UK pavilion, and then they were going to do that effect from the the Bell meet and greet, where the you know you you move from uh, you know her dad's cottage to the Beast Castle, and you were going to enter the world of the Royal Dalton Bowl, and then there was a spinner run. But uh, the, the reason we were, were doing that story is prior to that. Uh, Disney had developed a Christmas Carol ride for the UK Pavilion, and I actually have a piece of artwork that Sam McKim did for that back in '84. So you know, we were using that as an excuse to talk about Mary Poppins. But um, anyway, getting back to Dick Van Dyke, I, I was lucky enough to, to score a sit down with Mr. Van Dyke. Jeez, uh, this would have been. 10 or 15 years ago, he was, of all places, he was at SIGGRAPH because it turns out he uh, he animates his hobby and the company that uh, developed the software that Dick liked to use when he animated was there. And so he, he came to sing their praises and, and afterwards the publicist was nice enough to walk me around to the back of the exhibit and I got... Uh, sometime with, with Mr. Van Dyke and they, they always tell you never meet your heroes and I, I'm pleased to report that Dick Van Dyke was everything you, you wanted Dick Van Dyke to be he was generous with his time and his anecdotes he was very personable great fun and 
Um, though I have to ask you, as, uh, <laughs> given you work out there in L.A., um, what do you make of 98 years of magic? I, I'm trying not to make any connection. To the Betty White thing? <laughs> the Betty White thing. Yeah. You know, <laughs> you know, I I, mean, I'm sure there were people, Jim, that were uh, watching the clock to make sure that we made it to... <sighs> Uh, midnight yeah. today for 98 but yeah, yeah but yeah to, for those of you who don't remember there was this huge celebration of betty white's uh, 100th birthday that was planned i want to say it was, it was supposed to be january 17th 2022 and the thing is that that betty passed away in her sleep on december 31st 2021 and Weren't the newsstands already covered with like commemorative issues of like people and entertainment weekly that were honoring Betty, you know, for the hundredth? I mean, it just it, it kind of blew up in everybody's face. Yeah, so. it wasn't it wasn't great. Um I'm but proud. you know, we thank her for being a friend. <laughs> thank you. Oh, very good. Very good. And if you Golden ever want to see some great Betty White mm. vamping, what is this mm. what is the Disney special that she's on with B. Arthur where they actually seem like they can stand each other's company and they go behind the scenes at Disney MGM and sing songs and Oh, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Um well again folks, it it's it, it, the whole thing with the Dick Van Dyke thing. You want to honor your legends while they're still here. And and speaking of honoring people, um uh, Mr. Taylor and I uh want to thank all of you who contributed to the GoFundMe that Len Test and Tim O'Brien set up for our late producer, Aaron Adams. Uh, over $10,000 has been raised in, in Aaron's memory. Uh, that's more than twice our original goal. So, and uh, all monies collected will go to Aaron's widow, Sabrina Geiger. So thank you so much for your your kindness and generosity. And uh, by the way, if you, you want to read Aaron's obit uh, and contribute to the fund, uh, head on over to tinyurl.com backslash Aaron Z. Adams. So, okay, so let's just get started here with the news portion of the show. And uh, speaking of which, I guess I should mention, the news portion of Fine Tuning is brought to you by touringplans.com. Touring plans can help you save time and money at theme parks like Walt Disney World. Please check them out at touringplans.com. So, a big story this week, Drew, is... The talk of a, a Warner Brothers Discovery Paramount uh, merger. And um, I guess what intrigues me about this is, wasn't it, it wasn't all that long ago where we were hearing whispers of a Warner Brothers Discovery NBC Universal Comcast merger. So any thoughts on, on what happened here or... Well, I mean, that could still be. I think that there's there clearly seem to be like a number of suitors that are kind of kicking the tires mm -hmm. on Paramount. Mm -hmm. We talked about Skydance last week. So this is the latest. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it's interesting because these configurations have to be in certain parameters like, mm -hmm. you know, a a universal Paramount merger mm -hmm. would not work because you would have to give up one of the TV channels. Mm -hmm. Um it, you know, CBS mm -hmm. is owned by Paramount and NBC is owned by Universal. So one of those mm -hmm. would have to go. So it doesn't that wouldn't make as much sense. Warner Brothers does not have a TV channel. And mm -hmm. I think it would benefit, you know, from Paramount's library. But, uh, well, yeah, you and I were talking about, you know, the combined 
uh, animation might of yeah, the two. Yeah, that yeah. Get, gets interesting because you had mentioned specifically when we were pre-gaming the, the mashup of, of Cartoon Network and Nickelodeon. Yeah. And... Um, Oh, I'm I'm blanking the, the the gentleman. I want to say Guillermo, but I know I'm wrong. Uh, he did the the wonderful Netflix series. Jorge of, Gutierrez. There we go, Jorge. Yeah. Uh, and Jorge is not a fan of this idea. You know that that it, as he put it on social media, it means we're. Uh, Cartoon Network and Nickelodeon to, to effectively merge, that's one less place that you can go and pitch things to. Um, you know, and 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 that's an interesting take on this as well. That, you know, further consolidation within the business is not necessarily a good thing if you're you're somebody who's who's a creator. Um though uh, we were just talking uh, uh, about Universal and in fact when uh, we finish up here tonight. Drew has to to run to to get to City Walk to catch his um, screening of of what Aquaman and the the Lost Kingdom, right? Yes, of um, course. Yes. Okay, but it, as long as we're mentioning uh, Universal properties, um, you did see the news about the the Great Britain Park, right? Well, has Universal said anything? It looked like a lot of like patent filings and real estate things and and well, all that but okay. what's your take on it um I, well i i'm not allowed to to share my source but i i learned about this uh in uh late november and it's it's real uh and what's fascinating about it is that mark woodbury who well you know drew it was the head of of Universal Creative and now is in charge of, you know, Universal Parks and experiences. Um, he has a very distinct vision for this property uh, because, well, uh, first of all, it's it's in the UK and because there is already that uh, Warner, uh, Warner Brothers Harry Potter tour uh, thing. So Potter's not going to be a part of, of this project. And, uh, Simpsons obviously isn't going to travel because of Disney. So this is going to be the first universal park that really leans into their IP like exclusively. Um, but where this gets interesting is Mark Woodbury evidently passionately believes that universal is finally in, in the place that, that Disney is, that it has all of these IPs, whether it's minions, uh, or Shrek or trolls or, uh, you know, uh, migration, uh, all of these characters that people love. And it's like, look, we, we can build a really good park just with stuff we own. We don't need to license anything. So, um, yeah, it's, it's going to be interesting. Uh, and uh, obviously the, the other thing, because this is being built in the UK is, uh, going to be largely indoors because it, it rains a lot there. Um, but yeah, that, that, uh, no, this, this is a thing. And, uh, what is it? Uh, the bliss, Texas kid park, uh, universal kids will open before this also Epic universe, but, um, uh, and of course, the Las Vegas permanent uh, Halloween Horror Night thing. But yeah, this this could be up and running, Drew, as early as 2026, more likely 2027. 
So, um, but uh, well, I can't wait to learn more when we're off the air, since you did you not share any of this information with me beforehand. I am sorry. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> Looking ahead on the calendar, um, Disney, uh, you know, released information uh, about its 2024 slate, uh, both for uh, theatrical release and Disney Plus and. Um, you were pointing out there, there are some, some notable omissions, uh, you know, uh, care to comment? Well, they, they put out a slate that includes mm-hmm. theatrical and Disney plus, and there was no movie animated movie from Walt Disney animation studios for Thanksgiving 2024 on there. Mm-hmm. There was no Moana or Tiana shows, mm-hmm. which we had been promised forever. Yep. And there was no win or lose, Jim, which you know is my my passion is keeping track yeah. of what's going on with win or lose. So yeah. yeah. Now, how much of this? I mean, face it, how likely is it that we're gonna get a, a Thanksgiving without a new animated film from Disney? I mean, that uh, has that happened in the past thirty years? I mean, yeah, there were some time, like, you know, Winnie the Pooh was in summer. That didn't mm-hmm. work out for anybody mm-hmm. in 2011. Okay. Mm-hmm. There have been times when they've been out in the summer. But, yeah, I mean, I think that there probably will be a Disney animated movie next year. But mm-hmm. I think the combined, you know, hits of mm-hmm. Strange World and now Wish are... Yeah. Pretty unsettling. You know, Wish was sort of like Disney's last great hope for the year because it had such an off year and it just did not deliver uh, Mm -hmm. in any way, shape or form. Have you seen it yet? I have not. And my opportunities to see it theatrically are rapidly drying up. Um, uh, But again, how much of this do you think is people just waiting I, you know, uh, kind of that, that uh, knowing that it, this is going to turn up on Disney Plus and in January, or February. I think that's definitely part of it. But I think that if the movie had come out and every critic had said, oh my God, you've got to mm-hmm. see this, mm-hmm. you know, it's the best thing since Beauty and the Beast, mm-hmm. that people would have gone. Um, yeah. And there was not that sentiment. And there was not the sentiment from early audiences that mm-hmm. suggested that there would be a, a, you know, favorable audience response. Mm-hmm. And I think it will find its audience. I think, you know, I, I've said on this show time and time again that I think Disney Plus is the worst the worst thing mm-hmm. to happen to the company in a while just because of the way that it's kind of devalued every single business unit, including parks, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I think this is just another casualty of the Disney Plus black hole. As you and I are not sitting in front of our televisions watching What If right now, Jim, I think that that is something that's... Uh, <laughs> That did start today, didn't it? It did. Okay. Okay. All right. Well, there we go. Another thing I'm not paying attention to. Uh, But uh, but again, uh, worth noting here that it wasn't. I mean, we did have one billion dollar earner. You know, when it came to animation, we did have the Super Mario Brothers movie. uh, Kind of what. 574 domestic, 786 overseas, so a $1.3 billion earner uh, worldwide. And, you know, we already know that there's a sequel of sorts in the works. Um, oh, I think it's actually in production already, uh, is what uh, I have we, ever heard. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah. Um, on the other hand, you know, uh, you know, uh, 
kind of interesting. The um, I I don't know if you heard about the the uh, Legend of the Little Mermaid show that uh, is is going to be uh, debuting at Disney uh, Hollywood Studios uh, the fall of next year. Um, this is, however, based on the animated version, not the the Halle Bailey. Uh, live action of the Rob Marshall movie of the past year. And I, I, Drew, I'm kind of fascinated by that because if you look at the actual numbers um, for uh, The Little Mermaid that came out this year, 298 stateside, 271 overseas. So it made over half a billion uh, at the box office. Now, Now, mind you, if we factor in what it costs to make in the middle of the pandemic. Uh, are you hearing the same numbers? You know, mid two fifty, maybe three hundred um, to get uh, that thing. Up? I've heard higher than that. I've heard oh, that that is one of the most expensive movies Disney has ever made. Wow. Um, okay. Yeah. So, so I don't think it turned a profit at all. I mean, they wanted it to make a billion dollars. For me, when you look at what this film made in uh back in 89 i mean don't get me wrong ariel's a, a beloved character made a lot of money for the company but the movie early on i mean uh, only 111 million uh when it was initially released in 99 overseas uh, just above two million at the box office back in 89 but um, how many cassettes did it move jim that's the yeah, question and how they, many plushes and figurines and everything well, uh, that brings us to the other uh, interesting, you know, again. Well, wait, we before we move on from, from Little Mermaid, have you noticed how they're trotting out that $60 billion number in every press blast now? Uh, it's really interesting. It's like uh, as part of the $60 billion, you mm -hmm. know, reinvestment in parks, it's like, wait a minute, from everything everybody has heard, that thing was Mildew City because of a leaky pipe that hadn't been fixed in a decade. So don't act like this is some amazing reinvestment in the park. You had to do it. Um, yeah, I thought that was very funny. Well, I, 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 let's not forget that the other thing about that $60 billion is that when, you know, if you're somebody who's coming covering themed entertainment and every five minutes, Universal is, yeah, we're building a, a kid's park in Texas. And, and you know, and we haven't officially admit, admitted yet, but yeah, we're building a park in, in Great Britain. And, you know, an Epic Universe opens in, in just two years now. And it's, you know, if you're a Disney, you have to do something to, to try to you know, change the narrative. So it's like, yeah, we're going to spend 60 billion. You know, it's like, yeah. It, it, and how much of that is for, for mildew mitigation, but all right. <laughs> anyway, uh, getting back to, to beloved characters. Um, so this coming year is the year, right? That, that Mickey officially moves into the public domain. Is that correct? That's right, Jim. And we're hard at work here at Fine Tuning Productions on our ripoff of Steamboat <laughs> Willie, Steampunk <laughs> Willie, which has a quasi futuristic Victorian flair. And we think people are really going to enjoy it. So, oh, yeah. Well, there you go. Lots of brass, lots of rivets. Um, yes. I, I, here's the thing, though. Um, are we really going to see any of that? I mean, didn't Oswald slip into the public domain a, a few years ago officially? Shouldn't we have been hit with a tidal wave of merch for that character as well? 
Well, what's interesting, too, is I want to see how they're going to reestablish the Steamboat Willie connection to Disney. As you and I have noticed, Mm -hmm. there's been a lot of Steamboat Willie merchandise over the past couple of years. And things like the final episode of the Paul Ruddish Mickey Mouse shorts was very Steamboat heavy, mm-hmm. Steamboat Willie heavy. The logo for Walt Disney Animation Studios is Steamboat Willie. I mm-hmm. mean, they have really done a lot to connect Steamboat mm-hmm. Willie to Disney. So I wonder if there is if people are just nervous about that kind of litigation coming down. But I don't know. I haven't seen anything yet, anything unauthorized, but... Okay, when we finish here tonight, remind me, I I have a story to share with you. Okay. Okay, uh, moving on now to current box office. Uh, Again, Boy and the Heron uh, continuing to do amazingly well at the box office. Uh, I think you pointed out it's now the highest grossing original anime in U.S. box office history. We were talking, I think, on last week's show about uh you know you, you know you're out there in in the teeth of award season now and you know the smart money seems to be on you know this Hayao Miyazaki movie uh you know having sort of the the inside straight so to speak on best animated feature for uh 2023 but uh we've also seen some other uh you know animated uh well in this case a television series get uh, some recognition over the past few days. We had uh, and Netflix lost Aldi, which, you know, charming as hell. Uh, what, that took home five awards at uh, this year's Children's and Family Emmys. And it was also nice to see uh, Moon Girl and Devil Dinosaur get some recognition. Now, this is the time of year where your poor mailman gets a hernia, right? You have all yes, sorts of... Yes, yes. I mean, that's mostly over, mm. but I mean, mm. there's still stuff in the mail every day. Mm. Okay. Um, yeah, I'm so happy for the Lost Ollie team. I obviously mm-hmm. am very close to them, and mm-hmm. um, yeah, I I just love that show so mm-hmm. so much. I think it's so special. It and is. Yeah. They they work their their little mm-hmm. you know high knees off mm-hmm. on that, and the same team, largely the same team, are the same team behind Ultraman Rising, which is out uh, in 2024 on Netflix. So Ooh. hopefully, the same. You know, critical appraisal will will be bestowed on Ultraman Rising. Um, so yeah. By the way, folks, uh, when we get back, we'll talk. Uh, you know, uh, in earnest about you know what uh, how things are shaping up come award season, and we'll also uh, be recognizing uh, an anniversary because we're coming up on. Uh, the 25th anniversary of the release of DreamWorks, The Prince of Egypt. And uh, we'll, we'll share some stories about that. But, but first, this. And we're back. Okay, so this is that window of time where we haven't officially announced any nominations. That won't happen till what? Uh, middle, tail end of January? Um, tail end of January. I believe that voting starts on the 12th and ends mm-hmm. the 18th or something mm-hmm. or around then there. So yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. but we do have a better idea now, Jim, of what mm-hmm. will be nominated because we've seen some short lists for okay. some of these categories, right? All right. So, so let's talk about that, you know, uh, and yeah, the the one that's genuinely kind of disappointing is this news on Wish. You know, I mean, normally it's just considered a courtesy that you know whenever a new Disney animated feature comes out, you know, the one spot 
uh, is on the best song list, and the other is is for score. And in in neither case, uh, wish made didn't make any either of these short lists, right? Yeah, completely shut out. Yeah, I mean, and the there was a time in the '90s, early '90s, mm-hmm. that it wasn't just that they were going to get nominated; they would win whatever mm-hmm. that was every single mm-hmm. year. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was shut out of the score and original song categories, but. Mm-hmm. Some some worthy animated movies did make it into the score mm-hmm. category with Elemental, Boy and the Heron, and Spider-Man mm-hmm. Across the Spider-Verse, making mm-hmm. it in for score, which I thought was great. Okay, um, okay. But yeah, it's very interesting. All right. Now, if we pivot now to the animated short category, um, I, this is disappointed news. Can you talk about what the... The Pixar thing that we we wanted to get some recognition for for Bob. So. Yeah, we were really hoping that Carl's date mm. would be in there because mm. we love Bob Peterson, and mm-hmm. it did not happen. Um, sadly, a lot of other things did. A lot of things I don't really know or have seen. Uh, I would love to see them all, but I have not. But obviously the one that stood out that, that you and I have seen and talked about a lot already is Once Upon a Studio, which I heard some people actually in the animation community kind of grousing about because of those live action plates. Yeah. Um, but how do, how do you feel about it, Jim? Well, first of all, it's what, eight minutes long? I think it's nine minutes long. There's a lot of live action in this. It's hard to know how to, how to feel about it. I mean, I appreciate it as a piece. I'm happy that it's gotten some professional recognition. Uh, I just don't know if it should be in that category. This might have been, you know, the best of all possible worlds. Maybe something like, you know, what the Academy did in 95 for Toy Story. I mean, you know, they gave it a special Oscar for recognition for for being, you know, so special, you know, or in that case, the... The first, you know, uh, feature-length CG film. I don't know. I, it's going to be interesting to see what happens when people actually begin to vote on these things. Did you notice that uh, the Wonderful World of Henry Sugar got nominated for the live-action short film? Uh, did you ever see that, Jim? The Wes Anderson Roald Dahl yeah. adaptation. Okay, that's well. It is short. And it is live action. Okay. Did you watch those, Jim? Yeah. What was was fascinating to me, remember, during that same window of time was when, you know, there were that spate of AI, Wes Anderson's version of, you know, uh, Lord of the Rings or, you know, Jaws or was kind of interesting that. You know, you had these these you know these lovely little roll doll things that were, were kind of underlining, circling, and ident you know indenting that yeah that Wes has a style. You know, I mean, a very distinct style. You well, know, it was interesting uh, to see the poison was really interesting because that was always one of my favorite Alfred Hitchcock presents episodes. Oh yeah. It's a lot creepier um, in that show. I think it was one of the ones that Alfred Hitchcock actually directed himself to. But uh, yeah, it was an interesting take on that. So let's get back to the short list, Jim. Okay. Mm-hmm. Nobody's surprised. Uh, you know, the Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse got recognition on the VFX side of the street. Yeah, I love that because rarely do animated movies actually get 
um, recognition for their visual effects. But obviously, the team led by my buddy Michael Lasker uh, absolutely knocked it out of the park on this movie, and it is just the best. Any rumblings at all about Beyond um, the Spider-Man? <laughs> I have not heard anything yeah. about Beyond. Like, going to be a little, little bit. Okay. Good things come to those who wait. All right. Anyway, uh, as we mentioned, going into the break, we are coming up on the 25th anniversary of the release of uh, DreamWorks' Prince of Egypt. And this is an interesting film to talk about. There's no polite way to say this, but this was the film that was created with a goal to, to go after a best picture, right? I mean, people need to understand that when Beauty and the Beast came out, in theaters in 1991, it was such a big hit and such a cultural phenomena that for the first time ever, an animated feature got nominated for Best Picture. It didn't win, but uh, Jeffrey Katzenberg, who was at Disney at that time, uh, became obsessed with the idea of we almost won a Best Picture, and I want to be the guy who produces the animated film that wins the Best Picture. So... It was Pocahontas that was in development at that time, right? And I don't think that anybody really knew that, at least not initially, at least, that Beauty and the Beast was going to get nominated. I think at a certain point, maybe around that New York Film Festival screening, which everybody talks about, oh my God, it was work in progress, which I'd heard the movie was actually pretty close to being finished, and they actually pulled out finished animation to put more rough stuff in to kind of... Yeah. present the illusion <laughs> that it was not as far along and that you were really seeing behind the scenes. Yeah, I mean, I think that with Pocahontas and then with Prince of Egypt, you're right that there was a premeditated goal of, an, of a nomination. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and, and what's especially fascinating is Pocahontas came out in June of 1995. So Jeffrey was right in the middle of production of that when he and Eisner... Uh, you know, came to blows basically over Jeffrey insisting that, you know, uh, you know, we lost Frank Wells in April of 94. I've done my time. You should promote me into that role. And Eisner was was offended by that and effectively forced Katzenberg out. And I just remember there was a, a, a famous story about, you know, Jeffrey was doing his uh, sort of his victory tour. And in fact, a friend of mine gave me a heads up. Uh, you know, to get over to the studio. I was living in Orlando at the time. It's get over to the studio now. And it's like, why? Just don't ask. Just and go do to the Magic of Animation tour. And it's like, why? Just shut up and go. All right. So I go. I you know, I I get in line. I see the the movie, the highlight reel, and I I go to where you're in the fishbowl, and I look out into the fishbowl, and there's Jeffrey Katzenberg handshaking and signing books and that sort of he had flown down to florida to say goodbye to the staff there and of course what nobody knew is that jeffrey was also there recruiting for uh you know what would eventually be dreamworks animation but i want to say i i you know i stood in there for about 45 minutes as other people walked by and did the tour and uh, I, I watched them actually present jeffrey with a gift it was a steel drum that was filled with diet coke syrup Evidently, Jeffrey <laughs> is addicted to Diet Coke or whatever. I was going to ask if he had one in his hand as he was saying goodbye I, to people. I, yeah. I don't know, you know, but again, it was it was a very interesting thing to watch, and I spent a lot of time lip reading. But yeah, during that trip, supposedly Jeffrey's daughter 
you know, asked, you know, kind of tearfully, Dad, what about Pocahontas? It's, oh, Pocahontas will be fine. Don't worry about it. By the fall of that same year, 94, Steven Spielberg, David Geffen, and Katzenberg had set up uh, DreamWorks Animation, or, or excuse me, DreamWorks SKG, which, of course, was going to have its own animation studio, which Katzenberg uh, intended to have rival Disney. But the part of the story that I find fascinating is that supposedly Katzenberg kept bringing to Eisner the idea that we should make an animated version of the Ten Commandments. And Michael, every time, would tell Jeffrey, that's the worst idea I've ever heard. You know, it's like, no, we're, we're not going to do that. So uh, what's interesting that Jeffrey, the, when he's off the leash, the very first thing he does is put um, an animated version of the Ten Commandments into production over at DreamWorks. And, and uh, it, did you hear any stories from, from that time about him reaching out to, you know, various religious organizations trying to, to well, not only run the story by them, but also to get them behind the project to evangelize it to their individual congregations. Yeah, I think there's an anecdote like that in uh, The Men Who Would Be King, the great book about the formation of DreamWorks, which is a great kind of continuation of Disney War in some ways, uh, oh, if yeah. you've read that book. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, at the time, I was really fascinated by just him trying to poach mm-hmm. Animators. I mean, you hear stories oh. about people coming to work and there being, you know, Lexuses in every spot in the parking lot because he had just he had created this frenzy uh, for talent that would eventually get squashed by Ed Catmull and his wage fixing cabal, which Jeffrey also bought into that, which is sort of interesting. But um yeah, I mean, it was just a crazy time where the, there was such focus on talent and also that new kind of super detailed animation style that was kind of the Toon Boom um, software that was being used. I mean, I, I for me, I, I, I remember once talking with Nick Ranieri about, you know, and that's the thing. Jeffrey walked out the door and uh, Jeffrey was famous for... You know, uh, what, he'd show up at like six in the morning and start calling for folks on the East Coast. And, and, you know, I mean, Jeffrey, what was it, 200 phone calls a day? You know, constantly touching base with people, making sure that he knew what projects were out there or the hot talent or that sort of thing. Five minute meetings he was famous for having yeah. on his calendar. Yeah. And so I, I and it was just one of these things where Nick was working at it's still working at Disney. In fact, I, I want to say at this point, Nick is now working on Hades uh, for Hercules, and it, and it was just one of these things where it's like you know you should come here, you should work with me, and it's like, well, no, I, you know, but I will let the folks here at Disney know that you contacted me, and and then you know Nick got a raise, uh, you know everybody got a raise, you know, to, 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 as you mentioned, to keep everybody on board, you know, as you know, stay as Disney talent. And but as you mentioned, there was there was a reckoning that came, and, and a lot of people had to take pay cuts, and ugh, it was not good. But anyway, uh, back to Prince of Egypt. I mean, it was a, a, you know a murderer's row 
of you know of talent i mean you look at who who directed this thing you know brenda chapman simon wells uh steve hickner you know and uh and and the very fact that right after uh you know hans zimmer had done all of that amazing work for the lion king here he is doing the score for uh prince of egypt and likewise uh stephen schwartz uh colors of the wind took home the oscar that year for uh best song right yeah, like I said, without a doubt, the Disney song t- went home. But have you seen these? They've been doing some actually really interesting things online with, with each of the filmmakers kind of talking about different aspects of the movie. And I believe it was Simon Wells who said, you know, we were setting a template not only for the movie, but for DreamWorks animation in general. And it's very interesting because, you know, obviously the kind of highfalutin super detailed 2D animation would be out the door in, you know, a few years time with Shrek and a movie that was not very well animated, does not look that good, but really captured the zeitgeist in a big way. So yeah, there's, there's a, there's an alternate universe gem in the multiverse where Prince of Egypt was a giant hit and kind of set the tone for animation for the next couple of decades. But that did not turn out to be the case. But not for lack of trying. I mean, think about it. We, we had our direct-to-video prequel, uh, you know, Joseph, King of Dreams, coming out the, the year after that. Have you ever seen that, Jim? I have. It sucks so bad. <laughs> well. I, I watched it when I was ranking all the DreamWorks movies, and I, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, I, it's terrible. Well, but this was the thing, you know, that that they had convinced themselves that this this could be our niche. We could be the one who does great animated religious things. And and you know, for example, they were looking at the money that VeggieTales was hauling in, and it's like, oh, if somebody steps into this space and does great films. Didn't they end up buying the VeggieTales? I want to say yes, because yeah. you know, uh classic media, right? The, the, yeah. The, yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um Sunday morning values, Saturday morning fun, Jim. That's what they were all about. <laughs> there we go. And you know, the irony is you know, when they were less slick and less well-produced, the VeggieTales things were, were incredibly funny and, and entertaining uh, and, and actually got across their message in, in a, a, you know, a charming left-handed way. But, you know, again, once they made money, uh, you know, money ruins everything. So, <laughs> so, yeah, it's hard to know how to feel about Prince of Egypt. I mean, it, it honestly did not do all that well at the box office, you know, 101 million domestic, 117 overseas, worldwide total of 218. Did win the Oscar for uh, the best song that year, uh, When You Believe. And and again, the, you know, the, the strength of the score is why we now have the stage version. In fact, that, that's another thing that I've been kicking myself about. This fall, the stage version, I want to say it was the London uh, West End production of Prince of Egypt was shown in theaters around the country. One of those professionally shot, you know, they, they put the cameras out in the audience and do, you know, full documentation of the musical. But as I understand it, uh, if you go over to Broadway HD, you can also see that today. Yeah. Uh, but you were just mentioning that you grouped and rated all of the DreamWorks films. Where did Prince of Egypt wind up on your list? I don't remember where. I mean, it seemed like it was probably in the, like, you know, nice try 
face. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> but I, I will say that the people at DreamWorks were, were constantly bringing it up because, mm-hmm. you know, Puss in Boots, which earlier this year was nominated for the best yep. uh, animated feature Oscar. Mm-hmm. And there's that moment where there's that little dribble of blood that, that goes down Puss's face. And mm-hmm. <laughs> from so many people I heard, this is the most blood in any DreamWorks movie. Since Prince of Egypt. And it was like, oh, yes, of course, with the rivers running red with blood that still somehow found its way into a PG-rated kids movie. Uh, Yeah. I mean, I think it's a beautiful-looking movie. I think there are a lot of great ideas. I don't think it really gels all that well. I mean, you know, the Steve Martin, Martin Short stuff feels like it's out of a completely different movie. does um, it you know does, i don't know you know it, but it's also very much cast in that very katzenbergian way of getting the hippest people oh yeah look at at that voice cast I, again val kimmer uh, ray fines michelle pfeiffer sandra bullock uh you know jeffrey goldberg uh, danny glover uh, uh, patrick stewart you know i again you know it's just sort of like you know the the name, not necessarily an animation voice, but but a, an A-lister, somebody who could have sat on the couch with Leno or, you know, a, right, gone right, a right, good, right. good Morning America and help promote this thing. So, you know, the weird thing of it is there are things that I remember, you know, to this day from from Prince of Egypt. For example, there's there's a scene during the uh, the Exodus. Uh, and in fact, it's it's. It's a wonderful payoff for uh, and there's a little girl who's who's frightened and you see an, an older man comfort her and and lead her in the exodus and then there's that that great moment where you know Moses is parted the Red Sea and you have the crowds moving along the now dry bottom of the ocean making their way to freedom and there's a lightning strike and for a moment you see into the wall of water and there's a giant whale shark on the other side of the water. Yeah. And in a lovely reverse of the earlier scene, you have the old man sort of look up and and, and halt, like, you know, oh my God, what am I doing? And it's the little girl who takes his hand and it's like, it's okay, and leads him along. I mean, I, I still, to this day, remember that moment from the movie, but not a whole lot more than that, you know? Yeah, I mean, it was also in that crazy time where... You know, this is right on the heels of the ants versus bugs life yeah, debacle. Oh God, yeah, yeah. And there was just so much kind of animosity in the mm-hmm. animation community, kind of towards mm-hmm. Katzenberg and this new outfit. And uh, for better or worse, I'm not saying that that was not you know justified, but it was just a, it was an interesting time for a movie studio to open with two giant movies like Ants and Prince of Egypt. Almost back to back is just yeah. It's, really I, I want to say they were they were like six weeks apart. Yeah, you know. Uh, yeah, yeah. It was it was nutty. It was a nutty time. So, well, anyway, all right. So that's going to do it for this week, folks. Uh, that said, though, uh, you know that, that if you're looking for something else entertaining to listen to, there is of course, light the fuse, the official Mission Impossible podcast, and. Just recently, uh, you wrapped up your amazing interview with John Woo, which was so much fun. That was a two-parter, right? Yeah, that was a two-parter. I think the next... I actually don't know who's next, but somebody good 
It's coming up, I can guarantee you. <laughs> well, there we yeah. go. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and, and speaking of, of good stuff, uh, we have, again, uh, just recorded a brand new Disney dish with Len. Uh, and again, we, we, we talk about the uh, Christmas Carol attraction that was designed for Epcot, never got built. Uh, let's see, uh, you know, uh, hopefully in the coming week, uh, I will be doing uh, a brand new mud to uh, pay tribute to Aaron and and talk about all of uh, the Marvel related news of the the past week, you know, couple of months or so. I mean, uh, just it was kind of amazing how quickly the shoe dropped with the Jonathan Majors situation. Yeah, I was I was working that day and it was like we got a note out to to Disney immediately and it like came back. Nope, we are dropping all projects with him wow that's amazing it's sad yeah so, it's sad but yeah yeah, yeah. gonna be interesting to see where this goes forward oh also uh want to talk up disney impact the video show we do with jim shul uh we have a third episode of the one talking about uh development and construction of disney m gem tail end of this month on december 31st we're gonna do uh, a Disney Unpack Q&A where we answer your questions uh, about that project. And a lot of folks had some, some really wanted to know some, some interesting stuff about MGM. Uh, let's see, beyond that, uh, I, I, again, Drew, social media-wise, we are, are still on Twitter and X, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where, mm. Whatever. Uh, <laughs> Drew tailored like a tailored shirt. Follow me, don't follow me. Same thing. I'm over there myself. And also on Instagram as Jim Hill Media and on Facebook as Jim Hill Media News. Two things before we go here, folks. If you could do Drew and I a favor and head over to Apple Podcasts and rate and review. Well, not just the show you're listening to right now, Fine Tuning, but also Light the Fuse, the official Mission Impossible podcast uh, that helps other people find the show. And also, again, just want to thank you for your generosity. Those of you who contributed to the GoFundMe that Len Test and Tim O'Brien uh, set up at the suggestion of Drew Taylor. And again, you know, just it's so nice that you folks stepped up the way that you did and uh, helping out Sabrina in that way. And uh, like I said, if you, you want to check that out, uh, head to tinyurl backslash Aaron Z. Adams. And that's going to do it for this week. So uh, on behalf of Mr. Taylor, thanks for listening.